Please turn in your Bibles to our Bible reading, our Scripture reading this morning. A shorter passage than we often have, but we're going to focus tightly on the last verse here. 1 Timothy three fourteen through 16. 1 Timothy three fourteen through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here we end the reading of God's Word. Before we get into the the text, a couple of things uh, I should warn you as I was working on this and reworking it and listening to the messages at family camp and going back and reading, rereading and everything, the outline got a little longer than can reasonably uh, be covered in one sermon. So we will be, in a sense, taking the last point of this sermon for next week's Sunday morning sermon. We're going to break this down a little bit more, get into it in a little more detail. The second thing is, our speaker at family camp had this little thing uh, when he was teaching a, a children's communicants class. He told the children, there's a right answer for almost every question that, that you're going to be asked in this class, and that right answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every good question that comes along, and he proved it during the week. So I want to ask you a question. Uh, when we come to the last verse, and Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, great Indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he describes he, but he doesn't give a name for he. There's a pronoun with no antecedent there. Probably drives our grammar teachers crazy. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is he talking about? And the answer is, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Well, last week we studied the qualifications for the office of deacon. Among those qualifications was they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But at that point, Paul does not tell us what the mystery of the faith is. But a few verses down, the passage we just read this morning, we find these verses later in which he writes about the mystery of godliness. And here he defines the mystery. And I, I actually went back and checked some commentaries and some dictionaries and, and uh, Greek commentaries and so forth, and they all agree that the mystery of the faith that he writes up in the context of deacons is, in fact, this mystery of godliness. So it's at this point that Paul fills in the blank. What is this mystery of the faith that deacons should hold with a clear conscience? And by the way, it's not just deacons. This could apply to elders. Oh, and by the way, it's not just deacons and elders. Guess what? We all should be holding the mystery of the faith in a clear conscience, 
And that mystery of the faith in Paul's preaching, in Paul's teaching, that we confess that mystery of the faith focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Son of God who came to earth was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell. On the third day rose again and ascended to heaven and is coming again. There is our Apostles' Creed and what it teaches about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the mystery of godliness is about Jesus. But it's more than just theological truths about Jesus. Notice this is the mystery of godliness. But what is godliness? Godliness is being like God. Now, we do not become God. We do not become little gods. There's a church across, well, something across the street, I wouldn't call it a church, that says that we can become little gods. No, but we do grow as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we become conformed to the image of Christ. And that means, that's another way of saying that that our sanctification goes on and on through our lifetime, and ultimately, when we reach glory, we reach perfection, and we are conformed to the image of Christ. Notice that he is the pattern. He is the pattern. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the express image of the Father. Jesus has all the divine qualities and characteristics in human form. In human form. You want to hear what you want to see what the love of God looks like? Look at who? You want to see what the justice of God looks like? Look at who? You want to see what mercy looks like? Look at who? He is the express image of the Father. And godliness, the mystery of godliness, focuses on Jesus Christ because of his work because of his redemption, and it includes not just our justification, but our sanctification as well. More to come. Well, it is all about Christ. The mystery of godliness is all about Christ. The passage tells us that he was manifested in the flesh, That's clearly a reference to the Incarnation. The Son exists eternally. Son is is eternal. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all eternal. But at a point in time, Galatians, uh, Paul writes in Galatians 4, that when the time was right, he came forth, and he was born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He was manifested in the flesh, openly set forth on earth as the incarnate Son of God. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, and the Word, the Word that was in the beginning, the Word that was with God, and the Word that was God, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
passage goes on. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? It's actually a reference to the resurrection of Christ. He was vindicated. The Greek word is the same word as we often use for justified. Some, some translations have he was justified by the Spirit. But the sense is more than this. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Romans 1 verses 3 and 4 says this, concerning his son. This is the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of. That This is the gospel that Paul preaches. The gospel is concerning his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul introduces the book of Romans, and he introduces the gospel. He tells us this gospel is framed around Jesus Christ. Two natures, one one. One of the persons of the Godhead, but two natures. As to his human nature, he's descended from David. As to his divine nature, as Son of God, he was vindicated, he was justified, and demonstrated to be the Son of God in his resurrection because the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And he was vindicated. This one who came to his own, and his own received him not. This one who was rejected by men, especially when he claimed to be the Son of God and they thought he was committing blasphemy and sought to stone him. This one who claimed to be the Son of God was vindicated in the resurrection. The witness of angels, he was seen by angels. This one's a little harder to figure out. He was seen by angels. But we remember that angels accompanied Jesus at key points in his ministry. In fact, we might say that angels were constantly with Jesus, sent by God as ministering spirits. Think of this. Angels accompanied Jesus at key points in his life, at his birth. What was it? Angels appeared to the shepherds and told them where they could find the infant Jesus, the Savior, and they sang his praises, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to those in whom God is well pleased. His temptation. After the temptation, angels came and ministered to him. His resurrection. Angels were at the tomb to tell the first disciples and Mary who came to the tomb, what, what had happened? And he is not here, he is risen. As he said, the angels were there. The ascension. In Acts, not in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, chapter 1, as the disciples are looking up, as Jesus has disappeared from their sight, angels come to and, and, and say this, why are you looking up? This same Jesus that has gone up to heaven will come again in the same way, that is, in his bodily form, in his bodily incarnate form. Angels are there in the throne room of God, 10,000 times 10,000, singing the praises of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. He is witnessed 
by angels. Paul goes on and says, He is proclaimed among the nations. The preaching of the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatever I have commanded you. He is to be proclaimed among the nations. Paul said to the Corinthians, a church filled with problems, but they needed to hear this message. And by the way, what was the source of all the problems, and what was the answer to all the problems at Corinth? Thank you. <laughs> I, I had to throw that back in there. <laughs> See if you're still with me. Yes, actually, you can go back and look, look at the problem is you took your eyes off Jesus and you started focusing on yourself. The answer is, get your eyes back on Jesus, which is why Paul says, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus and him crucified. Because that was the solution. That's what they needed to hear. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as, serv as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, shine out, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do you see the glory of God? You see it in the face of Jesus Christ. When some came to Jesus' disciples, wanting to know more of the gospel, they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Is that your desire? To behold the glory of God. Now, you, you won't see Jesus physically until he comes again. Then you will. But meditating on the person and work of Jesus Christ, realizing that he is on virtually every page of Scripture, feeding your soul on the benefits of Christ, which you cannot separate from the person and work of Christ. Is that your heart's desire? Is that, is that more valuable to you than your houses, your portfolio, your cars, your boats, your vacations, all of that? As long as I have Jesus, I have wealth untold. He's proclaimed among the nations and then taken up in glory, the ascension of Christ. And we often talk about the ascension of Christ. Yes, that's when he went back to the Father. We don't realize that that's simply, that, that is simply another stage in the ministry of Christ for his church. When he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1, 9 through 11. What is Jesus doing now? 
did he just go back to and sit down and he's he's waiting until the father sends him for the second coming? No, he's interceding for his people. He intercedes for his people at the right hand of the father. By the way, he is not interceding without authority and without power. Just kind of meekly saying, oh, I hope you do this. What, what did Jesus say when he gave the church the Great Commission? All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. In heaven and on earth. Those are the things that focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And I'll, just very briefly, I've, I've taken you through some of the Scripture passages that show the incarnation, the resurrection, the witness of angels, the proclamation of the gospel, and the ascension of Christ into heaven. Keep that fixed in your minds and think about it this week, because we will be coming back to it next week when we actually get into the application. How does all this affect my growth in godliness? How does all this affect my growth in godliness? Before we do that, though, and this is the part I had to add after this week, the Trinity and our godliness. And here's where we actually begin to understand this mystery of godliness. We've, we've talked about the centrality of Christ in this, uh, in this early confession. Great is the mystery we confess. By the way, when Paul says we confess— we're confessing that this mystery is great, but we're also confessing the mystery. This is an early confession of faith. This is, this is a central doctrine for the church. He says, we confess. This is apostolic teaching, which is foundational for the church. Our speaker, Ryan McGraw from Greenville Seminary, laid out this pattern over, and we see it over and over and over again in Scripture. The Father ordains. The Son accomplishes the Father's will. The Spirit applies the work of the Son and, and nourishes and preserves and dwells. And the Spirit also is the one who testifies to the Son. The Father ordains. This passage is a passage that we all love. We probably memorized it. But we need to think about it in this context. Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn born among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we all like this verse because it tells us about the sovereignty of God, that God predestines, that get to use, there's the word right there for knowledge, predestination, and so forth. And all things work together for good. 
That is the sovereignty of God at work right there in his providence. And we love that verse. What is the good that all things are working together for? What is the good? It's And, and here's a clue. Oh, by the way, the answer is not Jesus. Well, the answer actually is Jesus. And I'll get to that. But it's not that you can win the lottery. Okay? Let's listen. <laughs> That is not the good. It's not that you can live a healthy, wealthy life here. You're, as some, some uh, charlatan said, living your best life now. No. The good is that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And everything is working together in God's providence by God the Father's ordination. Everything is working together for his people, that, that we should come to that destiny. That's our destiny, that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that should make us really happy. That he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. First Corinthians tells 15 tells us that he was raised and that we too are raised with him. Romans 6 tells us that we are raised with him. Even as we have been buried with him in baptism, we are raised to a new life in him. Everything working for that good, that you and I will one day mirror the perfections, the moral perfections of Christ. The Father ordains, and that's a passage that tells us what the Father has ordained. The Son accomplishes. John chapter 4, verses 32 through 34, I'm taking three verses or three passages from three consecutive chapters in the book of John. And here we have Jesus saying this in John 4, beginning of verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This was... This is so much the purpose of the Son of God in his incarnation that he even said, he says, I even draw my nourishment and my strength from doing my Father's will. By the way, when, when you and I are conformed completely to the image of Christ, we'll be able to say the same thing. We should be able to actually say something like that now, that serving our God, doing his will, actually strengthens us it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our, our hearts, our minds, our souls. In John 5, verse 36, Jesus says this, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He's talking about John the baptizer. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father sends the Son to accomplish his work, and the Father and the Son then send the Spirit 
to apply the work and nourish and grow. The works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There is no doubt that the Father has sent the Son. Look at what he is doing. What do you see? The blind receive their sight. The deaf receive their hearing. The lame leap up and walk and sing and praise God. The dead are brought to life. Nicodemus said to Jesus, We see what you are doing, we hear what you're saying, and we know you have been sent. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Again, the primary point of that verse is to show that Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. But notice what that will of the Father is. You are safe and secure in the arms of your Savior, Jesus Christ. He will not lose. This is the Father's will that he has accomplished. He will not lose any of those whom the Father has given him. You have been given to Christ by the ordination of the Father. And he will not lose you. He will not misplace you. He will not allow the tempter to subvert your faith. He will not allow you to be lost. But he will raise you up on the last day. That is the work of the Son, to accomplish the will of the Father. It is the will of the Father that we should be conformed to the Son. It is the will of the Father to send his Son to accomplish that work. And it is the Son and Father who together send the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit's particular work to apply the Son's work and to grow. I planted a little herb garden this year which is a little difficult in Big Bear. We have this thing called winter. You might have heard about this past winter, 13 feet of snow. It's still cold. It went down to 34 degrees the other night. It's summertime, and it's still going down. But I have this little herb garden. We use a lot of herbs in cooking. So I planted some mint, some parsley, and my favorite, because I love Mexican food, cilantro. I, I just go out and taste the cilantro every morning. It's just, oh, yeah, it's so good. I have to take care of the little garden. I have to make sure it's not getting too much sun that's going to burn the leaves. I have to make sure it's watered and fertilized and cared for. The Holy Spirit is like that with us. We are his garden. And he is growing his fruit in us. 
But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and following, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what he is growing and developing within us as he applies the work of Christ to us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice the way Paul puts that hook in there, against such things there is no law. What he's saying is, as the Spirit is growing this fruit in you, you are actually becoming conformed to the righteousness of God's written revelation, even as you are being conformed to the righteousness and the image of his Son. Paul goes on, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That last verse is instructive because conceitedness is a, a symptom of self-centeredness. Thinking more highly of yourself, and it is a recipe for provoking one another and envying one another. But if your eyes are focused on Jesus, who is the answer to every question, if your eyes are focused on Jesus, and if you are keeping in step with the Spirit as he grows the fruit within you, you indeed will be crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. So the triune God takes this mystery of godliness, which focuses on Christ and his work, his person and work. And as the Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies, it works in us. Godliness. This is the mystery of godliness, that somehow the Spirit takes this work of Christ that the Father has ordained and works in us. Some of us like to cook and some like to bake, and baking is a little different than cooking. Baking actually requires an understanding of some chemical reactions which you can't see but they have to take place in order for that baking to succeed. When you put yeast in flour and water and sugar, reactions take place that allow you to make bread. When the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us, things happen in us that we do not see. And that's why it's called a mystery. A mystery is something that is is secret that we we don't at least on the surface understand but as the spirit applies the work of Christ to us something happens within us and we are more and more conformed to Christ next week we're going to come back i'm just going to introduce this because paul in a, in another passage it's tangentially related to this. But in Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, he says this, To them, that is to the Gentiles, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the uh, that is the rulers. I think it's the them there. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think he's still talking about the same mystery, but notice how he defines it here, this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And next week when we come back, we're going to use this verse as a way of opening up, going back and reviewing how exactly does the incarnation affect our godliness and work godliness in us? How exactly does the resurrection of Christ work godliness in us? How exactly does the witness of angels, the uh, proclamation of the gospel and the ascension of Christ. And I think some of these you can probably uh, probably work through, but next week we're going to focus on those things. But it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us through these words of Scripture. Fill us with joy at the prospect that you have ordained for us that we should be conformed to the image of Christ, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Give us a thirst for righteousness. Give us a hunger to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. 